So we've been reading the New Testament chronologically by order of events. So this week we pick up our reading with Paul. He's really finishing up uh, his third missionary journey. We're in Troas, and I circled it for you guys on there as he's uh, making his way back to, uh, back to Jerusalem. He started this journey about four or five years ago um, uh, from Antioch, and he's going to end in Jerusalem. We know he spent about three years um, in Ephesus, Ephesus. Um, and on this journey, we know he wrote the letters um, to the Corinthians and the letters to Romans, because we just finished reading all of that. Um, so we're back into Acts as he's just finishing up his journey. And quite honestly, at the first glance of our reading, as I started reading, uh, it kind of seemed a little boring to me. I don't know if it did to y'all as Luke was narrating. Um, it was kind of like an old travel log where he had this port of call and that port of call, and he was unloading cargo and loading cargo, and Paul was going ahead and they were staying behind, and they had all these uh, layovers and all these ports, and in the midst of this, he he had you know a couple of kind of uh, revealing anecdotes and some detailed accounts of activity that that happened along the way, but it started off just a bit boring for me, and it reminded me of anybody uh, Star Trek fans, old Star Trek fans, William Shatner back in what was that 1970s were kind of the cheesy ones. Where I'm just like, no, I watched the cool ones, <laughs> Jean-Luc Picard, yeah. Well, it kind of reminded me that uh, a little bit how Star Trek kind of always started out with uh, Captain Kirk, and he's um, he starts off, you know, Stardate, Captain's Log, uh, wherever uh, they are, whatever universe they're, they're in, and we've entered a spectacular binary, you know, infusion, and we're going to, you know, and you just sit there, and you're going, oh. But then what always happens, something very adventuresome, something spectacular as, as the story unfolds, and then it ends kind of, uh, you kind of get a moral to the story that they've all kind of learned from, and, and then they move on to their next adventure. And I was thinking a little bit at kind of closer glance, and as I began to read through the rest of these chapters of Acts, it kind of read to me like a great, great TV epic. I love epics. You know, Paul's Log, Asia Providence, Troas, 58 A.D., Paul and his missionary team rushing to Jerusalem for Pentecost, you know, kind of starting out, and then adventure happens. I mean, you've got a guy falling out of a third-story window. <laughs> you, I know, you have all these, you've got tearful goodbyes, you have um, warnings in every town, a port of call he seems to go to, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go, don't go. You get there in Jerusalem and you have this celebration of God's work and then all of a sudden you go into this Nazarite purification ritual thing that we haven't heard about since what, like the Old Testament? <laughs> then you have anarchy and mob rule and you have Sanhedrin infighting and conspiracy for murder. Then all of a sudden here pops in this youth you've never heard of, nephew of Paul, who's the young informant and an escape into the night, and then it ends. 
And it's, I always hated that it's to be continued next week. So Megan will have to pick up next week. But that's really kind of this adventuresome epic that kind of I, begins to happen. And in all of this, I'm actually just going to kind of share with you guys what I learned, what I got out of uh, this week's reading, which the more I read, it was so much. But I'm just kind of um, narrowing it down to four things. Um, and what I believe really is that Paul's revealing to us by his words and his actions really what he most valued. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. And our values, our beliefs, our heart, um, govern our behavior. And I was thinking, you know, continuing kind of like with my Star Trek epic, each day, don't we all kind of wake up each morning with sometimes what feels like our own epic? I mean, I could start off Shauna's log, Carmel Valley, California, March 16th, 2019, awakens, morning devotional, morning ablutions. And then my day never seems to go according to plan. It just kind of goes, doesn't it? Starting with on the way to work, you know, the traffic lights aren't working, it's going. But here's the thing, no matter what happens during my day, no matter what happens during Paul's day, your day, my words and my deeds reveal what I do and do not value, what I do and do not believe, what my heart truly is. And so I'm going to go in and I'm going to take a look, see if I can do this, at really kind of uh, four things of what I picked up. And of course, the more I read this, the more I began to pick up um, some other values uh, or uh, uh, beliefs that Paul had that he lived out, so you can add to this list. But I'm going to take a look at a life, um, Paul values the life of obedience, a life that sought unity and compromise to further the gospel, a life that sought opportunity to testify to the gospel, and a life that trusted God in every circumstance from beginning to end. So taking a look at the first one. So Paul values a life of obedience. And I'm going to uh, actually kind of add uh, to God's direction. And we started out in uh, Acts 20. And if you wanted to follow along Acts 20, I'm going to look at 22 and 20 through 24 where it said, and now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. I don't know about you, but I would stop right there. <laughs> Say, yeah, I'm going to stay here. But Paul doesn't blink. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. He didn't blink. He didn't consider his life. He considered God. Paul's being directed to Jerusalem and he journeys ahead knowing that there is suffering awaiting for him. 
and he's warned and he's begged all along the way by the people that come he comes across um, don't go there there's trouble there's trouble but he lets nothing deter him from his course he values a life of obedience to the direction that God has given him to go no matter what and we learn in Acts 21 um, in 10 through 14 we have a prophet I'm assuming his name's Agabus that's what I'm calling him um, he comes down from Judea, and I don't know if you remember him, but uh, he's the same prophet that was in Acts 11 um, when he appeared uh, at Antioch to prophesy the coming famine that was going to come in Judea. So here he is back on the scene again, and it continues, it says, And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, and we as Luke and his uh, missionary pals that are with them, we as well as the local residents began what? Begging him not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and break in my heart for I am not ready for I am ready not only to be bound but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of Lord Jesus he was willing to go for it whatever the cost wherever God was leading him he said I will follow and since he would not be persuaded we fell silent and they all began remarking, the will of the Lord be done. There was a realization there, I think. Agabus, at this part, he offered a much more kind of specific prophecy that they had had um, before this. Before it was just what? You're just going to go into some troubles. There's going to be some suffering. Well, now there's some more specifics that are happening. Um, and Paul still says, uh, go ahead. And he even kind of brings up the the fear and, and that's going on in the back of everyone's mind that if you go there, you just might die. And he says, but I'm, I'm willing to obey no matter the cost. So Paul's obedience to God's direction, to the Holy Spirit directing him, really value, uh, reveals that he values God above all else. It's like period. He doesn't even blink. It was important for Paul to stay focused on and finish the race that God had given him. And this was an attitude that, that was characterized all throughout Paul's ministry. We've read about just really kind of uh, some of it. We still have a whole bunch of other letters uh, to read that Paul wrote um, that you really, his heart is revealed and his focus on the finish and staying the course and staying faithful to God um, is revealed in a lot of these letters that we'll be reading over this summer. But I want to tell you, there's a conclusion to this in 2 Timothy. And it's 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. And he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. This is going to start 
Sounding familiar? I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, us. Paul had a singular goal, a singular, a central mission, and that was to testify the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And anybody, of course, that would listen, he would testify. The thing is, is we all have a race to run. It's not just Paul. We all have ministries that God has given us. It's different for each one. And sometimes, uh, for me, I think a lot of ministries sometimes change as, as life change. There's ministries in motherhood. Um, there's ministries in be taking care of parents. Um, there's ministries at church with our gifting. Uh, I mean, it just it's not just this evangelical uh, ministry that Paul had. We all are, have a race to run. So, like Paul, we need to fight the good fight, and we need to finish the course, and we need to keep the faith. I, would, I, I kept thinking, I, I'm striving for this faith that Paul has, that no matter what, at no matter what cost, I will follow, I will do. Um, I can honestly sit here and say I, I'm, I'm not instantly there yet, but definitely working on it. Uh, and Paul had his eyes on what lied ahead, what lies above us, the rewards in heaven, the beauty of being with Christ in heaven. So that was important to him to stay focused. It was also important that the Lord's will be done. And Denise hit uh, some last week um, on God's will. And that question, I think a lot of us have a lot of times, and what is God's will for me? Um, that question gets asked all the time. The thing is, is the Bible is full of verses from beginning to end on God's will for us. And I just printed up a, a few. I have 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. This is good and pleasing uh, and pleases God our Savior, who wants, what, all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. There's God's will. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you, for me, in Christ Jesus. Another one, God's will for you, for me. Romans 12, 1 through 2, Denise told on this last week. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. That's what's God's will for us to do. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I can keep going. James 1 5, if you lack wisdom, you should what? Ask God. That's his will. Who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on what? My own understanding. In all my ways, submit to him and he will make my path straight. Micah 6, 8, he has shown you a mortal. I like that. Oh, mortal. 
That really put me in my place. <laughs> I really, yeah. What is good? And what does the Lord require of you? Here's what God's will is. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is just very, very few verses. There are so many more. The thing is to get into God's word, to study and to be in prayer over your life, and God will reveal what his will is for you. And then here's the thing. Be ready to live. Lord, your will be done. Sometimes it gets easy knowing God's will, but then sitting there and being very humble and saying, I'm putting self aside and your will's going to be done, Lord. I'm going to move forward. Paul lived that. We see Paul following God's course and will for him no matter the cost. And he values a life of obedience over his own comfort and desires. Because it would be very comforting just to kind of hang out in these cities, you know, in Ephesus or, you know, where they loved him and he loved them and, you know, but he moved forward in God's movement. So then I just put up a couple of questions just to kind of consider and is, do you recognize God's ministries in your life? There's always more than one. Do you recognize God's revealing will in your life? And I gave some starting scriptures to kind of go by. Um, you have to kind of get in the Bible and dig in, but they're from beginning to end. So Paul valued a life that followed God, a life that was obedient. I will follow you. He also valued a life of unity and compromise to further the gospel. And he had devoted a good part of his third missionary uh, journey, taking up this love offering. We've been reading about it kind of off and on, especially in, in Corinthians um, for the Jews in Judea. And it was really a practical way for the Gentiles to show their unity with their Jewish brothers and sisters and to repay them for sharing the Gospels with the Gentiles. If you remember back in Romans 15, in 25 through 27, Paul says, But now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. For Macedonia and... Is that Ikea? Is that how you pronounce that, Denise? Have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they were indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. So Paul's been working on unity between Christians, Jews, and Gentiles, and it has not been easy. There was... In the church, a constant threat of division um, with Jewish extremists. They were called the Jude Judaizers. And they wanted the Gentiles to live like the Jews and follow the law of Moses. And if you remember a lot of the issues that were discussed at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. This was also the same group that challenged Peter upon his return from uh, Caesarea in Acts 11. So they've been around and been causing some problems for a while. 
And wherever Paul ministered, these extremists tried to hinder his work and steal his converts. It's kind of like a, a what, is, what do they call it, like a co-op, uh, covert operation kind of thing. And Paul hoped that his visit to Jerusalem with the offering would really help strengthen and unify the Jews and the Gentiles uh, together. He really was working hard to bring unity in the church. And upon uh, their arrival in Jerusalem, Paul and his missionary team, they visited James. You remember James? He's the half-brother of Jesus, and he was the leader of the church there in Jerusalem. And he, he met with James and the elders, and they handed over the offerings to the Gentiles, and they shared what all had been happening in this ministry, what God had been doing. I love Paul's humility, because you know Paul's been working hard night and day, 24-7 for God, but all of it he gave credit to God. It was God's movement and God's doing and God's empowering that this Christianity movement spread. And they all praised the work of God in this. And while Paul had been off evangel uh, evangelizing uh, these Gentiles, uh, the Jerusalem church there, they shared that the Jews, lot, many thousands of Jews there in Judea had come to Christ, which is another reason to celebrate God's work, because theologians place the number of Jewish Christians to be between 25 and 50,000 that converted. That's quite a bit. And this was a time of great Jewish nationalism and anti-Gentile attitudes. And many of the new converts were pretty uh, zealous for the law because they'd been influenced by these Judaizers. So Paul's return with the offering that he so carefully worked so hard for and lugged hundreds and hundreds of miles uh, actually presented a little bit of a, what you would think of as a public relations issue. And Paul, he had previously, he'd argued for tolerance and the right of each group to their own views on these things. That's what the Jerusalem Council was about. And there was some compromising that he did. He had Timothy, if you remember, circumcised to kind of help um, mend and bring unify. Um, he argued, remember, in 1 Corinthians for the veiling of women in worship. Uh, but the teaching that was going on, the distortion of it, uh, was kind of standard operating procedure there in Jerusalem. And it was causing quite a, a divide there. But Paul recognizes these tensions that are going on. And when asked, he went ahead and joined with these four Jewish Christians with their Nazarite purification ceremonies and he paid for um, their offerings to do so. And when someone does that, it's, it's considered an act of reverence. It's a symbol of identifying with the Jewish people. And so they were hoping that this would kind of be a happy solution uh, to kind of eliminate or tone down uh, the division and the problems that were going on. Uh, I do want to mention that if you remember reading in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul participating in this type 
type of behavior, it doesn't violate the principle of living under grace. I would tell you, uh, if you look at 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 21, Paul says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. It says, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Does this feel like a tongue twister? I know, so I need a chart to follow. It says, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So what? As to win those not having been under the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So in this, Paul was working to compromise, kind of becoming all things to everybody to bring unity so that he could win brothers and sisters to Christ. Unfortunately, this little public relations thing didn't work out so well, did it? It backfired. These uh, Asian Jews, most likely from Ephesus, they saw another chance to get at Paul. And they weren't in their home city. They were in a territory now that was more anti to Paul's message than they were in their own hometown. And it's very likely that even Paul compromising and uh, doing the, the Nazarite purification thing, even if he didn't, it's most likely these guys would have found something. So we know that anarchy happened, and Paul was accused of taking this Gentile person into the court, even though there was no proof, no one saw him, they are just assuming something Paul was physically dragged out and beaten and they were working to kill him I don't know about you but I just can't imagine I just can't imagine being so angry like that over something and the Roman troops stopped it but this tells you the ugliness of the crowd Luke used words like stirred up aroused dragged kill, beating, uproar, mob. Of course, I kind of sometimes hear some of that in today's uh, news, don't we? Yeah. Paul, we learn, let me see if I can turn. Paul would compromise in certain areas to advance the gospel. That was his purpose. And he always would meet people where they were at. And he started there, but he would not compromise truth. I put up kind of some questions to ponder. Um, have you ever had to make a compromise in order to lead someone to God? Where would you draw the line and refuse to compromise? What does it mean 
to you to be all things to all people in order to win some. Like Paul, I believe that we ought to value a life of unity in the church and compromise in some areas to further the gospel, but never compromise truth. Paul also valued a life that sought opportunity to testify to the gospel. Paul is sharing the news all the time, isn't he? I mean, even when we started out in Troas, what's he doing? He's in this building. It's midnight. You know, they have all the candles lit, and he's just talking away, sharing the good news. Until, what, they fall out the window. He goes out. God uses Paul to heal him. They go back up, and they talk the rest of the night. I thought that was kind of interesting. I mean, it's like Paul just didn't even stop. It's like he just came in. It says he fell on him, and then they went back, and he just kept going. Talk about a focused person. He also, if you remember, in in the goodbye to the elders, um, he reminded the elders of uh, at Ephesus. He says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. He's always reminding them back to the basics, back to the gospel. And even on the steps of the temple in Jerusalem, in Acts 22, Paul gave his own firsthand account of his conversion. Um, And this speech, you know, he had his his, um, Jewish nationality in there, but he strongly emphasized his personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And one thing we have to remember is that this is about 20 years or so since Paul's conversion, and there are probably many who haven't heard his story that are out there listening. He just uses the opportunity to share what Jesus did for him. And this is one of several of what's known as Paul's defense speeches. And Paul, he's as much a defender of the faith. He thinks that's just as important as Paul preaching the faith. And Christianity, which uh, I think in some of the Bibles, uh, it's called the way, um, is rooted in God's promise and is moved by God's direction. And Paul's defense speeches aren't only just in defense of him, but also in defense of the, the very way that he's out preaching because he's this, this natural extension of what God's promise is, and that's the message is going to all people, the Gentiles. And as we're, he's sharing his, his um, conversion story, I mean, the mob, and it's a mob, hundreds, they're silent, aren't they? And they're listening to this. Until the very last word, Gentile, pops up. And then they go into their frenzy. The thought that Jews and Gentiles could stand on equal footing before God was completely intolerable to them. The racism, really, of these first century Jews was so rigidly established. There was such 
rooted pride. That they could not, get this, they could not imagine God's concern for any other people but them. I'm thinking they probably didn't know or understand God. To think that way. So their view was that he's speaking blasphemy. And they moved very quickly from away with him to kill him. I want to do just a a short sidebar here on Paul's conversion. Because I think a lot of people think that unless you have some kind of conversion that looks like Paul's on the Damascus Road being struck down, that any other conversion other than like some big amazing thing that's not real or it's, it's less impactful for sharing. Here's the thing is God has set no specific format, no specific pattern to which people come to faith. It looks different for everybody. Some may get converted in church. Some may be sitting at home with their parents. Some may go to some big evangelical event. Uh, Some may hear it on the radio in their car all by themselves and God moves in them. Some may be struck down. It's just everything in between. And, but here's the thing. Each conversion, each testimony, your testimony is extremely important and powerful. It is God moved. And though all of ours may different. Uh, differ widely, the message never does, which is what? We have a recognition for a need. Awareness that I am not sufficient. Only Jesus is sufficient. And dependent on the faith of the work of Jesus Christ through the grace of God. That's what produces eternal life. People may come and to you and doubt theology, but your own story, your personal testimony, your conversion is a very heart-convincing testimony and can impact people. Especially when you back it up with godly living. So you and I should always be ready to answer for our faith. And seek opportunities to share Jesus with whoever God pushes us, or pushes in front of us sometimes, to share Jesus with. 1 Peter 3.15 is, I think, a great memory verse. Put in your hearts, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Anyone ever had someone club you with? (laughs) Do it with gentleness and respect. This is a calling, not just for evangelicals like Paul, but for you and me, for every single Christian. Paul valued this and he lived it daily. 
He also, I think, shared uh, one more time in these chapters um, uh, his uh, testimony, shared Jesus, and that was before the Sanhedrin in Acts 23. He stated, I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And I have to be honest, in the midst of all that was going on, I'm not exactly sure if he was trying to give testimony or if he was trying to create a little bit of a diversion, knowing that they would all go at it. I just don't know, and everything I read was murky. No one else seemed to know either. But I thought either way, I can, t I can tell you that he did not compromise with the truth. He's just stated the fact. I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Uh, even in the midst of being uh, his life being on the line, and who knows, maybe he planted a few seeds. I don't know. Only God knows and God moves in all these situations, so I just trust him. So I just have a couple of questions to consider. And one is, have you ever written out your testimony? If you're someone like me, I wrote out my testimony years ago, and I and, uh, as matured, I kind of worked it and reworked it uh, where I can verbalize it better. I'm one that is terrible on the spot. You ask me a question and I look like this. But when I write things down, like when I wrote down my testimony, there's something just by the way I think that it goes in a category in my head. And now when people ask me about the hope that lies within me or ask questions about my faith, I can share much better, much easier, because it's just, I don't, it just comes a little bit more natural because I've written something down. And so now, What's been sitting in my heart and my head, I can now kind of verbalize that. So I would suggest, if you've never written down your testimony, write it down. It's a powerful, powerful statement of God's movement. Another is, are you prepared to share the gospel if asked? Rhonda's worked on this for years. And Rhonda and Grace Point have lots of resources to help if you're interested. If you're like, you know, I've never shared and I'm interested in, in, in uh, being able to do that, being able to verbalize and seeing what that looks like. There's all different situ situations. I think we all sit there and, and have this visual of someone asks us a question and we pull out a piece of paper and we draw this diagram, you know, with the all that kind of stuff. I've never actually done that, but it's something when I've put it out, again, it's something I've written out, which now goes into my head, which I can now verbalize out um, and just meet people like Paul where they're at. So uh, if you're wanting to do that, um, you can talk to Rhonda, you can talk to teachers and, and leaders. Um, you may even want to practice this at your tables. We haven't done that in a long time. It's been a while since we've done that. Um, and then the other question I had to consider is, are you on the lookout for opportunities to share the gospel? I found that when I ask God and pray, 
It's amazing who he brings. <laughs> he does bring them. And um, I admit that I kind of sometimes go in shaking when someone does that, but God takes away the fear and gives the words when I just lean on him and trust in him. So be on the lookout to share the gospel. And then I went to, did I? I can't see what I put up there. Okay, I want to make sure I was ahead. I can't see in my distance. So I want to go and hit the very last one, that Paul values a life that trusts God in every circumstance. Paul trusted God in his mission and spreading the gospel to the Gentiles from the very beginning. He trusted God in guidance and direction from the Holy Spirit on his all three missionary journeys. Do you remember the one journey where he went, headed one way and the Spirit said no, so he headed the next way, the Spirit said no, so he headed. It was almost like by process of elimination. <laughs> and finally, he was guided in the right way where the Spirit wanted to lead him. And Paul trusted God even in coming to Jerusalem, knowing there would be suffering, knowing that God's going to be there for him with him and guide him through whatever it is he doesn't even know. And Paul trusts God while he's sitting in jail, all beat up and unsure about what's about to happen in the future. In Acts 23, we know that Paul's brought before the Sanhedrin so the Romans can kind of figure out what the problem is. Why do you want to kill this guy? But the bedlam really that happens, I think, is, for me, it's almost comical watching these religious leaders go at each other. It, it's, it's reminding me of the politics today. Or if you've ever, I was telling the, the leaders in the meeting, if you've ever seen like the, the English Parliament or some of those other countries where they are like leaping over chairs to attack a person. I mean, it's just crazy how they are. Complete just bedlam. Interestingly, in about 12 to 13 years from now, in AD 70, the temple and the Sanhedrin will no longer exist because it's all going to be destroyed. In Acts 23.10, it says the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them, and he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. I, I have another just little sidebar here. Uh, Ananias, who was the high priest at this time, you know, the one that's like, just hit Paul. Um, he was a pretty brutal and scheming guy. He was very corrupt, and he was very liberal in his use of violence. And the Jewish nationalists really hated him. And when war broke out in Rome, with Rome, in AD uh, 66, which is about eight to nine years from when this is happening, Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, he tells about how the nationalists came in and they burned Ananias' house. 
and they chased him out. And he had to run all the way into the northern part of Jerusalem and hide out in Herod's palace. And they found him hiding in an aqueduct. Just in, yeah, yuck. Thank you. You're like going, yeah. Just yuck. And they killed him and Hezekiah, his brother. And I don't know, I have to admit, I smiled when I heard this, because every now and then, it's just kind of nice for me. This is really kind of showing my human side to know that evil gets its comeuppance on this side of heaven. And uh, I just, anyway, I wanted to throw that out there, because I was really mad when he was abusive of Paul. I almost felt like going into the story and protecting Paul's like don't hit him I just wanted to take him so anyway so when I read that I thought I just want to bring that up he does get uh, his just results on this interesting thing about Paul is he experienced a life of pain and suffering didn't he uh, through all these 20 years after conversion and what's happening to him here and in other instances that we've read about and will continue to read about, was wrong. It was unfair. It was unjust. And Paul did and does suffer through this. Um, Denise, when she taught, I think, I don't remember if we were in First and Second Corinthians, but you had a great teaching on suffering. And I remember that. And so if anyone missed that, it'd be really good to go back and hear that, her teaching on that. And Pastor Bob, this last Sunday, he taught on suffering as well. His sermon was, why does God allow evil and suffering? Isn't that a question we always ask? Even sometimes when it's like I get the answer, I still ask it. And if you missed it, I strongly suggest you go online and listen to it. There are two um, videos that he sent the small group um, leaders, and I actually kind of want to incorporate that here and have us listen to it. And then I just have about three minutes to finish up on the teaching. Um, one, there's one video, it's two minutes long, and then there's a second video that's eight minutes long. And Bob said that it really displays a lot of questions and perspectives related to suffering, and I listened to it, and it was just very good. So I'm going to see if I can. You can do it, thank you. You don't want me messing with it. There's one on the next, yeah, this slide, and then the next one. test of your faith, but if you don't have a faith to believe in, it kind of makes you wonder why Why is there suffering in this world? Famine and death. It was a reason why he took them. Uh, maybe he needed some angels up there to protect, protect, to help him in the fight against the devil. A baby is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Why doesn't he want me to have this? I think that bad things 
are just the way that you see them. I think God's in everything we do. I don't think God does these things to people. I think he has a way of getting us through it. Why would anybody want to create people who do horrible things to each other each and every day? It doesn't make any sense. because sometimes they put themselves into it and others just, it just happens to them. When my grandma died, she died of cancer like six years ago. And I remember like when she was like a few days before she passed away, she was like, there couldn't possibly be a God. No one would ever want, no one would ever want to inflict this pain. Some of the best lessons I've learned in life and the best um, feelings in my heart came from very painful times. I don't think God's sitting there and saying these people are hurting and maybe I should help them or we're, I'm gonna pray to this you know being and he's gonna save me I don't think that happens um, I think he's just there I guess <laughs> I'm constantly struggling I suppose I'll be brutally honest with uh, suicidal ideation and I find it very miserable often despite the beauty of the world to be made conscious in this form why what why does it fair why was why were the little kids shot the other day I want to know why this happened, but he's showing me that he's here with me, so I suppose the answers will come. It's just I'm going through a journey right now that's painful. My son has had severe epilepsy since he was born. For 15 years, he'd have 10 to 20 epileptic seizures every day. And uh, our whole life was basically revolved around his disability. And yet I would pray for other friends who had sick children and it seemed like their kids got better. Um, but my son didn't. The one moment that redefined this question for me was probably in 2004 with the tsunami that happened in Asia. And just the sheer devastation of a natural disaster just brought me to my knees. And where I was at the television saying, God, seriously, why? The question, how can God allow these bad things to happen? I think is a, it's a reality. It's a hard, hard question. In fact, maybe the hardest question God allows humankind to make their own choices and ultimately they can lead to some magnificent things. I mean, you have a look at the extraordinary things, extraordinary things that human beings have been able to accomplish uh, in the freedom and autonomy that God has given us. But the downside or the dark side of this autonomy or this freedom is that we can just create the most vile and contemptible and cruel and vicious outcomes of being human. A lot of what we see in the world, in my opinion, of what I've experienced, is, you know, you have generations of men, you know, women, father, mother, children, when they make the choice not to love, love God, love each other, you play that out and um, there, there's a lot of pain that comes with that. The suffering 
that comes from nature or, or earthquakes or hurricanes or things like that, I, I find harder to explain. And uh, I guess you've got to live with the mystery of it. Um, I think the Christian answer is the best one. Uh, when you go out east into the eastern religions, it doesn't make any sense of suffering at all. Uh, it's kind of like suck it up. It doesn't make any, it doesn't attempt to try and make sense of it or derive meaning. So the Buddhist answer, for instance, and I have great respect for Buddhism, the Buddhist answer says it's not real. Um, suffering has no reality. Well, you know, I, I think you tell that to a suffering person and I don't think it makes sense to them. The Christian answer actually doesn't answer everything, uh, particularly when you're suffering, um, but it is the best one around, uh, without a doubt. About five years ago, I was pregnant and I heard the words that no mother ever wants to hear, your child is not going to live. Um, on April 7th, 2008, I delivered a little girl who was alive when she was born. Her name was Audrey Caroline, and she lived for two and a half hours. We loved her a lifetime's worth, but a short amount of time. Watched her get her first bath and a little haircut. But later that night when everyone was gone and it was just my husband and I alone with her, as time went on, we knew that we were gonna have to call a nurse to come in and take her. I had to hand my daughter to someone and watch her be taken away from me knowing that I wouldn't see her again this side of heaven. And as I lay in that hospital bed and everything in me wanted to just bang on all the buttons and tell them to bring her back. I really called out to God in a way I never had before, and I just said, I can't do this, and I need you to just be here right now. I just need you to hold me. He did. He did. I will tell you that in that moment, I saw um, a side of God that I've never experienced and have never forgotten since then just his faithfulness to one girl in a hospital room who was devastated. And I just really felt that he was there. Sorry. When I talk to people about the stuff they've gone through, I, to be honest, the, for me the best answer and the, the most appropriate response as, as a Christian, as a believer, is to cry too hold the hand and to weep too and then to introduce them to someone who helps pull you out of a pit and not in some weird messed up quick fix kind of a way I get really annoyed and <laughs> when we Christians propose that as an answer as like the quick in a box fix that changes everything um, but there's a there's a phrase it's in one of the books of the Bible which talks about I uh, and it's this it says I know my Redeemer lives and, um, and that part of the Bible has always won me because it talks about this person who buys back all that's been lost um, through your own helplessness, um, through violence, through your own foolishness. And um, that's who I met. <laughs> Someone who, who helped me over, over years and blood, sweat and tears um, bring back that what was lost. We have seen God use our son's sickness um, 
in amazing ways and people have found faith in Jesus through his life and I guess maybe God does uh, use some people and their disabilities and their struggles to help other people to find God you know I, I do think like if there really is a heaven and if what is said about heaven from the words of Jesus is true and that there my son will never be sick again and someday I'll see him as this perfect body in this perfect form and then Ryan looks at his life and we all see the amount of people that have been influenced by his life am I going to argue with what God did probably now probably be thankful that he allowed our family um, I guess to, to struggle through um, and yet why does he just help other people? I don't know, but I'm glad he does. I'm glad he just helps. I'm glad that no matter what we see, apparently God has some plan for that. We see that God actually comes to the planet. He actually lives among us so that he understands our suffering, our hurt, our pain. He understands it all. Then Jesus dies on the cross and in the mystery of faith all the junk of the world all the junk that's in our hearts all the junk that's in our relationships all of that junk dies with him so in the christian worldview god doesn't leave our world in the state that it is but actually is seeking to heal it and bring us back we feel as though we're in this battle and um really what we need in the midst of that battle is a hero to step in for us. A hero, obviously, is, is God. I believe that God considers those who struggle with him to be heroes also. In fact, I, I would go so far as to say that those of his children who struggle against all of these terrible things that we see in the world um, are cheered on by the population of heaven and um, if they should die in their struggle I believe they get a hero's welcome when they meet him that uh, verse the gal had um, I know that my redeemer lives and at the end he will stand on the earth that's Job 19:25. I think that's a good one to put to your heart, especially during times of trouble. And we're sitting here with Paul again in jail, bloodied and bruised, and God meets him there. In Acts 23, 11, he says, But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Don't you know the joy that Paul felt with that, that on a night such as this, it had to have been a, a great light for him, uh, just full of glory, um, chases away the dejection that he probably was feeling after all that he had gone through. Um, it brings about a certainty that he's not going to die here. He's not going to die in Caesarea. He's Romeward bound. And that's something that's been on his heart for so, so long. The joy he had to have had. We know that the next day there was this plot um, to kill Paul. 
um, and they snuck him out. I love it. There's like 470 Roman soldiers. That's quite an escort um, to Caesarea, um, where he stayed there in prison. And that's where it leaves us for Megan to continue next week. Um, but there's a couple things that, um, let me see, go to the next slide. Oh, there's uh, Caesarea. I always like to try and figure out what I'm looking at, so I always look at uh, pictures and maps. But um, some things to consider um, in times uh, where, quite honestly, we have to just trust God in every circumstance. And one is that God's in control even when life takes us through difficult and dangerous circumstances. And when everything turns against you and there seems to be no hope of escape, anyone kind of felt that way, really, really in a hole? Know that God has not abandoned you and he'll work out his plan for your life. Also know that God doesn't accomplish his purposes many times through great big visible miracles. That sometimes the most casual and normal happenings really reflect his divine interference in our lives. I can look back sometimes at some things that just seem so small and I know they were from God. I picked a couple questions uh, that Pastor Bob had uh, on the uh, insert for uh, Sunday, the bulletin from Sunday, uh, maybe to talk about in your studies for the video that was shown. And one of them was, can you think of a time that God used a hardship to grow you spiritually? And another is knowing pain and suffering to show up in all of our lives as a group I know you're all in a small group. How can you practically support each other in the days ahead? That's a good one to talk about. I want to just end that our life is a testimony to what we believe, what we value, who we belong to, which is God, what's in our heart. If we value prayer, we will pray. If we value God's word, we will find time to study and read his word. If we value sharing the gospel, we will find the opportunities to do so. We'll be looking for them and asking God to bring them. If we value, and you can kind of fill in that blank maybe with what you've learned this week. These are just the things that I saw in in the reading that really stuck out for me, and I saw Paul not only saying it, but living it in the most strenuous of circumstances. Our values, our belief governs how we're going to behave in our daily lives, in our, our relationships. So then the question is, what do you value? And in that, I, I want to say, remember to always seek God's guidance and power to live a life that's valuable to him. I think so many times we can go out and try and do it ourselves, and we can't. 
Everything that Jesus did, he tells us in John, everything came from the Father. And Paul, everything that Paul was capable of doing came from the Father. What we're able to do, we cannot do it in our own power. <laughs> I've tried, it just doesn't work, it fails. But in God's power, by following the Holy Spirit, by him giving us the courage, giving us the strength, giving us the wisdom, giving us that, and you can just kind of fill in that blank to remember that. And that's what I'm going to end with. There's plenty to talk about in these chapters that started out so droll. <laughs>